Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the third chapter of the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, page 828 in the church Bibles. And while you're turning there, just, just a word of thanks. I received some lovely calls, letters, conversations, prayers um, since Thursday. And I just want to thank you sincerely for it. Um, I, th- I think we do a lot of good things here at the church. And one of the things I think we're exceptional at is caring for people in loss. Um, so thank you because I've been able to receive a lot of that care. Um, if you're wondering about things, uh, Thursday is the funeral service, and then we have a couple of events planned as a family after, after that. Um, my mother was 82, wonderful lady. I was thinking this, this week that my love of reading and my love of music uh, all stemmed from my mother. She was a great reader in every place in the house, in the car, wherever we went, she had, she had music playing. So it's a good, it's a good memory. And it's actually a real comforting thought. So, thank you. Let's read the Bible. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derive its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you that you're with us and you are clearly for us. Therefore, I need you to take pity on me and bless those before you. Be pleased to pour out your spirit upon us, ever increasing, that you might, as we learned this morning, that you might save us from splashing around in our own strength and in our own wisdom and our limited vision and our limited understanding. We want and we need to be cared for you by now, please. And we would ask you to forgive us of our small view of you and our large trust in ourselves. And thank you that this prayer that we've read shows us how committed you are for everyone in this room that belongs to you to have experiential knowledge of your love for us in Jesus Christ. So we need you to preach to us this morning, Father, by your Spirit, through the voice of of a mere man who's the worst of all sinners and the least of all saints. Christ's name, and for his sake we ask these things. Amen. Well, if you were not here last week, we began last week with a word of encouragement to say that in our study here of Paul's prayer to God to, for the church in Ephesus, that we need to be reminded that this is a prayer. And therefore, Paul is asking God to do these things. I mean, that's fundamental. It's almost a no-brainer, but it needs to be said. 
God has to do these things because we cannot do these things on any level for ourselves, which means the strength of this prayer being answered is all on God. This will be a work of God. This whole prayer then is predicated on our weakness. Now, in light of that, I would venture to say that some of us in this room feel powerful more than weak. And probably some of us in this room feel weak more than powerful. Personally, most of my life, I felt weak. And I'm actually really glad about that because this is quoting now from Sinclair Ferguson, weakness, our confession of weakness, will never be a hindrance to the work of God. Rather, it's opportunity for God to work in unexpectedly and expectfully powerful ways for Jesus' sake. As in the state of weakness, we find ourselves in the stable and safe position of relying on God's power in a way we would not if we relied on our own power. So God's power, if your Bible's open, you'll see this, chapter 1, verse 20. God's power which raises the dead. All the power in the world at one time could not do that. God's power which wakens dead sinners, forgives their sins, and gives them Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4. God's power which has exalted Jesus Christ to the highest place over every authority, power, and dominion. Chapter 1, verse 22. And God's power with, which without we can do nothing. Now, it makes sense to me then that we who have essentially borrowed everything from God should ever think that we are powerful in and of ourselves. Now, we know the mechanics of human life. There's some people that come into a room and they bring power. There's some people who come into a room and they just come into a room. And we have to be honest about that. But that kind of power that I just spoke of can't change anything. Therefore, again, this whole prayer is predicated on our inadequacy, which is one of the reasons why we pray. And it's predicated on the complete adequacy and commitment of the indwelling triune God to be what he is and what he wants to give his children. Verse 14, he's a loving father who's the only one who can do this. That's the element of these prayers. So if you look at verses 16 and 17, we said last week, and we're going to do a brief review just in a moment, but that was the, a kind of prayer for sanctification. Verses 18 to 20 is prayer about justification and all the wonderful benefits that come out of that. Verses 21 and 22, it's the glorification of God who can do anything far beyond us, and it's motivation for us as his children. So as you're thinking through this prayer, it's about God's power and it's about God's love and God's capacity to do way beyond what we can think or what we can imagine. Remember Spurgeon's quote we quoted from last week. We'll do it again. Not all of it, but he says, me, this is God, not help you. If there were an ant at the door of your granary asking for help, it would not ruin you to give him a handful of your wheat just so you are nothing, nothing but a tiny insect at the door of God's all-sufficiency. And so gospel logic rings true here. If we trust God for our salvation, should we not trust him for everything else? Unbelief is such a terrible burden, isn't it? It just ruins everything. You see, the grace of God does not stop short of the initial act of our conversion and then tell us, okay, what, you're on your own now. I mean, I saved you, but it's all up to you now. I mean, that's silly. That's just, we, 
that is, doesn't even make sense to me any more than the love of a human parent who adjo- adopts a child stops when all the legal process has completed. You, you understand this. After the adoption, the new parents don't say to their kids, hey, you know what? That was great, but now you're on your own. Of course not. No, you, you, you throw yourself into the privilege of creating a family. So after our Father assures us that He is ours and we are His forever and ever, world without end, He begins to set His affection on us by, by keep showing us affection. He wins our love by, by keep giving us His love. He wins more and more of our trust by showing us how trustworthy He is. And from all eternity, God will constantly, now think about this, God will keep showing us in one way or another more and more of his love and more and more of his commitment to us and thereby he is the root cause, he is the chief means of our ability to have more love for him, our ability to understand how much he loves us at ever-growing capacities. He's the root cause of our holiness, and he's the root cause of our commitment to him, and he's the root cause of our worship to him. I mean, holy people, we understand that one, but beloved children first, because you will not have, you will not have the, the latter without the former. And that's why Paul prays, verse 17, for God's power. Look at your Bible, please, if it's open. Out of his, God's glorious power, riches, he, God, may strengthen you through power, through God's spirit in your inner being, so that God's son, Christ, may dwell in your hearts through faith. Power from God to, to renovate the totality of your existence, which keeps coming into your life up until the very end. And remember we said the word dwell was the word uh, to make a home. And we said that Jesus is not sleeping over. He's actually moving in. And so we can't compartmentalize our life. Jesus won't let us. He loves us too much. And anytime someone moves into a house, things change. And so he's ripping up the carpet. He's rebuilding the walls, uh, cleaning up rooms. Appliances get to be updated and on and on. Now we know that there's much in our lives that we are very, very comfortable with. And we think they're never going to change. But the new owner, in love, has far better taste and he has higher standards than we do. You know, sometimes you hear people say, I, I haven't given this over to God yet. I just want to say, baby, he's going to get there. In fact, he really doesn't need you to get over it, give it over to him. He's going to get there. So I kind of stumbled onto this this week in my, my weekly readings of C.S. Lewis. Listen to this. Imagine yourself as a living house. Christ comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed to be done, and so you're not surprised. But presently or soon, he starts knocking the house about in a way that that hurts. and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing on a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. The process will be long. Some parts very painful. Some a bit joyful. But that is what we are in for. Nothing less. So you see, Paul understands that we need great power to... to have this renovation to begin. 
And God gives us that power in Jesus Christ, which is why he prays. And he understands, oh, please, this is so fundamental. He understands that the grace of God is more powerful than any human law, any human command or threat or ultimatum, right? Because that's usually how humans deal with things. We usually deal in ultimatum, threats to get our way. God does not do that. The God of all grace does not do that, not to his children. Hostility is not, let me say it like this, this is better. Holiness is not God's hostility towards us. You see, all of God's wrath on sin was directed for his, towards his son once and for all on the cross. The son exhausted the wrath of God. He drank the cup up fully. No anger remains. No anger remains. So, so God doesn't have any needs for his children for threats and ultimatums, not for his kids. So he begins his prayer, verse 16, calling on God's power by God's pillar in order that God's son, the Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, will dwell ever increasing as he enables the, us to put more and more of our trust. That's faith because righteous people live by faith. More of our faith in him. Therefore, sanctification, which is the first part of Paul's prayer, is, is foundationally and ultimately a work of God in our lo- lives. Because if any part of it wasn't, then we would be able to pat ourselves on the back when we have some degree of victory over sin. And patting ourselves on the back is very, very dangerous. And this becomes key to the second part of Paul's prayer, verse 17b. Do you see it there? And what we will see is that he prays for more of God's power because he doesn't use the law to affect sanctification. He uses the gospel. Justification, it's rooted in the prayer there, 17b and 18. Now, I'm going to say this again. This is fundamental to a healthy understanding and a healthy existence as a Christian this side of heaven. So I remember last week I, I used the phrase um, uh, liberal Protestant, Protestantism of the, of the uh, mid-20th century. And some of you had like a look of glaze over your li- eyes. And I thought, well, let me just, let me give you a little explanation. Uh, the, liberal Protestantism is the difference between that and what Paul is doing here, okay? This is from a book, Why Johnny Can't Preach. He says this, one finds a frequency in today's preaching of moralism that would have been quite at home in the most liberal of the Protestant pulpits of nearly a century ago. Laymen and even some officers don't notice this because they use the term liberal and conservative as the network's news, use, network news anchors have taught them to use them. They think liberalism is a kind of ethic different from the conservative ethic. But in terms of church history, liberalism was an understanding of Christianity that wished to embrace its ethics, ethical system without its redemptive strength. In other words, preaching morality without preaching Christ. It goes on. Christian proclamation that effectively emphasizes morality rather than redemption is Protestant liberal proclamation. Now, now we hear this a lot, so pay attention. Moralism occurs when the fundamental message of the sermon is be good and do good. Whenever the fundamental purpose of the sermon is to improve the behavior of others so that Christ in his redemptive office is either denied or largely overlooked, the sermon is moralistic. 
Such moralism is so common in American pulpits that when in an ordinary conversation one individual attempts to correct another's behavior, it's not uncommon to hear the reply, oh, so you're going to preach to me now, are you? People have obviously come to associate preaching with moral improvement or moral scolding and not the exaltation and the proclamation of the fitness of Jesus Christ, the adequacy of his work to save from the uttermost those who come to God through him. So that, you know, you get around the people like, listen, I am really serious about holiness. Okay, good. Okay? But be serious and have no joy, and you're a real pain in the neck. You're going to be the classic, oh, I thank God that I'm not like other men. Remember that parable that Jesus told? The Pharisee and the, and the tax collector, the sinner? I'm doing it all, God, and they're not God. And you know what? Somebody needs to motivate them, God, and I'll think I'll be the one. Bam, bam, bam. Do better, be better. Do better, be better. Self justified to self-justify is what we love to do by nature it separates us from everybody but the ter- terrible little secret i was going to say the dirty little secret is that it separates from the cross too that's not healthy there's all the difference in the world by asking god to have mercy on you than what i just read about So then again, what does Paul pray for? You see it there, verse 17b. I pray that you being rooted and established in love, God's love, this is agape love, this is Christ's love, cross-centered love. In other words, the motivation, the understanding here is Christ's love, which sent him to the cross for our sins. I pray that that love, that understanding will be given to you by God for you to be, there are two words, very familiar to people in Minnesota, rooted in and established in love. Rooted, verse 17, is a botanical term. A plant, a tree metaphor. Establishing is an agricultural term. Construction metaphor. And there's two things that I love about Minnesota, especially northern Minnesota, and I'm not, this is totally serious. I mean, like, if there was an apocalypse, you guys could build a house, and you could plant a garden, no problem at all. It's a beautiful thing to see. That's what Paul's saying here. The metaphors are real. If our relationship with Christ is, be, is going to be able to be fully grasped, the, the immensity, the totality, the, the intensity of God's love for us, then our roots are going to have to be real, real deep, and God is the one who's going to have to do it. Healthy plants, by and large, have deep roots. Strong, mature trees have deep roots. Strong structures must have what? Sound and deep foundations. Paul's saying a well-rooted tree, a well-built house. In both cases, there will be stability. Now, it's not as if these Ephesian Christians have never known Christ's love. Paul says, he acknowledges, verse 17b, they have already been rooted and established in love. What he's saying here is the question of an extent as they move along in life. So, we would say things like, do you want stability? And every Christian would say, absolutely. But God would say, you can have stability, I'm going to give it to you, but it's only going to be rooted in the cross. Okay, so let me just go down this path. It's not going to be financial stability. It's not going to be your personal power. It's not going to be intellect, outlook, beauty, morality. None of those things are inherently evil. They're just completely inadequate. They're not deep enough. They're not large enough. They're not safe enough. They're not even alive. They have no heartbeat. They're dead. And they can't love you back. 
They're so fickle. And they can't give you power. So God has given the Christian this depth and order, the phrase, Jesus loves me. <laughs> it's, it's not kitty talk. I, I told myself a thousand times this week, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. And I'm grounded in that, verse 18, that we may have power. Now Paul's expanding his prayer to not just you and I, but every Christian everywhere. With all the Lord's holy people. That we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to kata labano. That's the Greek word for grasp. The kata is like an intensifier. So you're taking a strong hold. Like this is a grimace. To take a hold exactly. Decisive, initiative, grasping firmly something in a resolute manner. To apprehend, to comprehend God's love. Making his love, or as we say now, owning his love. Verse 18, that we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. In other words, Paul prays that God will, because only God can, only God can. Okay, so this is not about us. You don't have to do anything. Literally, you can just sit there. God will give us power to experientially grasp the immensity of the love of Jesus Christ in its full and complete dimension. In other words, at every part of our life, in every dimension of our life, in every moment of our life, intense awareness that God loves you. Now, if you've ever been in love, you, you know just an inkling of what is taking place here. I mean, being in love is one of the greatest things beyond our salvation that we can know. However, if you think it's only about feelings then you're way off the mark. I mean, they may come and they may not come. And so what Paul is asking here is so profound. He's saying, God, make it so that whatever direction of life we look in, are in, will be in, we will be able, by your power, to experientially grasp as much of God's love as possible and even more. That's the love which surpasses knowledge, which is a profound phrase. Knowledge, by the way, the word gnosko, first-hand experiential knowledge connecting with God in a way that was theory, now it's reality. So again, by nature, if we get it and we have it, whatever it is, we love you, God. When we don't get it, when we don't have it, by nature, what am I doing wrong? Or you wouldn't say this out loud, what are you doing wrong? Or what are other people doing wrong? Paul doesn't want that. Whatever takes place, it's fine. God loves me. Now, I need you to bear with me because there are two things we need to draw from this. One is the theological and one is the practical, the application. And we can't do the application without the theological. So when Paul speaks, verse 18, of the width and length and height and the depth of all of God, we can see the width of God. If your Bible is open, chapter 2, verse 18 The width of God's love is that God accepts sin-filled Jews and sin-filled Gentiles equally in Christ. And he brings them together, people that were formerly hostile to each other. And his love is so wide that he brings them together and he makes them one family. The length of God, chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. God chose us before the foundation and the creation of the world. With a salvation whose outcome will keep giving to us from all eternity. That's the length of God's love. It's infinite. 
the height of God's love, chapter 1, verse 3, He has placed all of us equally in Christ with every spiritual blessing possible. Everyone in this room. And we see the depth of God's love by which He, in the person of His Son, reaches to the lowest level of depravity possible. Now think about that. This is the depth of God's love. He reaches to the lowest level of depravity possible as Jesus takes on our sin accepts its full penalty, thereby he exhausts the justifiable wrath of God in the physical body of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 2, verse 1 and following. So we were formerly dead and he made us alive, enemies, and now we're friends, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. See, that's, that's the theology, which leads to the practical. You're probably more interested in the practical maybe than the theological, who knows? So here's the thing. In your personal life, we look, we'll be able to see God's love. Okay, so let's say life is really, really good. We won't think that life is really, really good because there we go again. We keep making all those really, really good decisions. High five, dear. God's love. When life is really, really terrible, you don't always have to say, what am I doing wrong? What is he or she doing wrong? What is God doing wrong? And the classic, what do I need to do? When life is at its end, it's okay, Jesus loves me. When life is shaken, Jesus loves me. When life is stable, Jesus loves me. When the normal decline of life comes, it's not some penalty. It's a reality. I mean, ultimately, it's a penalty of sin, but it's a reality. When we find ourselves failing miserable and we're trying our best, God loves me. When our children have wandered, God loves me. When our children have not wandered, we're not thanking ourselves. We're thanking God. God loves me. When our marriages are not what they should be, God loves me, us. When she isn't what she should be, when he isn't what she should be, God loves us. When they are, when you're a super great Christian couple, how did that happen? Well, we know God loves us. And so when that love becomes a reality in every direction and every dimension of our life, which is what Paul is praying for. We can sing the song, all glory be to Christ our cling, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing, all glory be to Christ. So you see what Paul is trying to do, he wants us to frame our life in God's love, not in our obedience. He wants us to frame our life in God's love, not in our ability to do something. He wants us to frame our life in God's love and not out of fear or fear of lack of some kind, which we're so tempted to do in the age and stage that we live in. So in his prayer, verse 16 and 17, we find Paul is not content with that Jesus Christ just dwells them in them. He, he, this is beautiful. He wants Jesus to expand his domain, if you would. Not some passing or nominal knowledge that Jesus loves them now in verses 18 and following, but an experiential knowledge. He wants us to know the full extent of that love and that knowledge to transform us in a way that we can, look at verse 20 and 21, that we can barely imagine. Don Carson on this writes, the remarkable fact is that Paul clearly assumes that his readers, Christians though they are, do not adequately appreciate experientially the love of Christ and the only thing Paul knows what to do is to pray. Is to pray. 
So this is not, oh, Christ, help me to love you more. Great prayer. We should pray it all the time. Rather, this is prayer. Ask yourself, do you pray this? God, help me to better grasp your love for us. Not just me, because it's a corporate prayer. Us. All God's holy people. God, help us all to grasp better your love. That, that is what this prayer is all about. That we might be better able to grasp his love in every dimension of our life. Good, bad, and different. It doesn't matter. There's two things I want to say. A lot of times when you get around a humpty grumpty Christian, part of the thing is it's like they need to know that they're loved. They need to know that they're loved. Pray it. And the second thing here is when Paul asks the mind, it's, this is not like just purely academic and it's certainly not mystic. Paul's not asking God to give us bigger brains or, you know, like goosebumps so that we would understand how much God loves us. No, he's asking God to give them power, his power, to grasp experientially his love in every experience that they have. Again, whatever direction life turns, we'll be able to see and say with ever-increasing understanding, God loves me. God loves me. When, when you map out your future, God loves me. When you open your Bible and you map out your future and you find that the two conflict and you bow to the Bible, God loves me. When you've been pounded by sin and you have given in and you are deeply struck at the level of your depravity at which you did not know was so bad, God loves me. When victory over sin has taken place... God loves me. When the gospel ministry is costing you dearly, God loves me. Now, when we think about feelings, the nature of feelings is they go up and down. We understand that. And so what Paul is doing here, he's helping our feelings being grounded by the facts. You understand that? Our feelings being grounded by the facts. So loved ones, preach the facts to your feelings. Pray the facts to your feelings. How wide and and long and high and deep is the love of Christ? Fact. And you see, there's all the difference in the world between having a picture of your kids hanging on the wall than holding your kids in the arms, right? That's the difference. That's one is knowledge, one is experiential knowledge. I mean, there's all the difference in the world but having a picture of your spouse by the bed than having them actually in the bed. So pray for others and pray for yourself that our lives would engulf, be engulfed by the love of God in Christ so that we would be in step with the love of Christ and we would see everything through the lens of the love of Christ. And that love, Paul says, is infinitely beyond reach that it becomes impossible to understand fully with the human mind to exp- and express fully with the human words. God, Paul, God wants... Paul wants God to cover us in his love in a way that's like constantly overflowing. Now, if you know your New Testament, that's standard practice. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may have some hope. No, that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 15. Romans 5, the love of God abundantly poured out over you. Ephesians 1, the superabundance, lavishness of God's love. God's not into little, and he's not just into, like, specs. He's into overdoing it. 
pray that for yourself and pray that for your brothers and sisters together, verse 18, with all the saints because the love of God, again, is so wide and long and deep that we need our brothers and sisters to help us in that love. We need their experiences to be our experience. Okay, so here's the thing. The person is sitting there. I don't hope you're not in the room, but you're in there and you're like, are you kidding me? Do you live, live in the real world, you know? To be filled with the fullness of God and the love thing. I and mean, that Sunday is fine. And Monday's a holiday, so that's fine. You know, but Tuesday's coming. And then September, September 10th, Tuesday is coming. That's the day after Labor Day, by the way. Are you kidding me? Okay, that's why Paul is like, says what he says in verse 20 and 21. He almost anticipates that reaction. So what does Paul do? He reminds us that the God who is our Father, verse 14, is the God, verse 20, who is able to do exceedingly, hyper-repriso is the word. It means hyper-infinity. Some scholars think that Paul actually had to make up this word because it wasn't in the Greek language. Hyper-infinity. It's more infinity is what he's saying. More than what we ask. More than what we imagine or think according to God's power that has worked within us. Let me just stop you just for a minute because I have this voice in my head right now. I didn't have it when I was preaching, but I have it in the voice in my head right now. And you're like, okay, but you know, I've been doing that for a long time. And all the things in my life, they're not what I want them to be right now. Okay. Right now. Right now. Right now. Okay, fine. But what about after now? And what about the fact that every dimension of your life, God wants you to know that he's loved. So if you don't get the thing, or if you're like in fifth place, or you always have like kind of like that kind of existence and not like this, or maybe your Zixon will be here, love of God. The love of God. That's how powerful the love of God is in Christ Jesus. He is able to do to more than what we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. So is, God is not only able to do what we ask, he's able to do more than what we ask. And it's not only that he's able to do more than we ask, he's able to do immeasurably more than we ask. And it's not only that he can do immeasurably more than we can ask, he's able to do more than we can imagine. What a journey, what an adventure, what a love, what a father, what a God What a savior. What an incentive to pray unless you don't believe any of this. Then don't pray. God is able to do this because he he loves us. He loves to give us even more than what we can imagine. And today, this is my prayer for you. Today, may your prayers and your thinking be opened up to the floodgates of God's love in your life in ways you do not know yet. Because I have a sneaking suspicion I could be way off here. But usually we frame our love, or excuse me, we, we pray, frame our understanding of life with resources. Ours are what we think we can get. And it hems in life so much. Instead of framing our life, not even in the resources of God, but in the love of God in Christ Jesus. You take your pick. Which one do you want? I know which one I want. And that's why every day in the Christian existence is like a new day. It's like a new day. New love coming. New ways to know that God loves me experientially in my life. You know what's funny? I have three 
goals I have not met yet in my life. But I can say this with absolute certainty. If the whole thing shut down today, like I died, sorry, oh gosh, that's what I meant. Should have just said that. If I had like a couple of minutes, you know, before I left the earth, I would say to God, holy cow, what a life you gave me. What a life you gave me. It has been fantastic. Now, here's the thing. If I'm lying at the judgment, you're going to know it. (laughs) Okay? So we'll hold off. But if I'm not lying, then by golly, jump on that. Right? Jump on that. Let's pray. I think we have a closing song. We're going to have a prayer, though, before we sing. Father, thank you for the gift of prayer in Christ's name. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes prayer possible and he makes it meaningful. And even though, God, we admit there are some things are on prayer which we, we know are a mystery to us. We, we do know that prayer is an absolute necessity. And so we thank you for the grace given to us to exercise the privilege of prayer, clearly confident in both your ability and your willingness to do far more than what we can ask or imagine. So God, please help us to pray. Help us to pray big things. Help us to pray small things, daily things, and help us to pray about everything in light of eternity for the sake of your glory through your matchless power. For Jesus' sake, we pray this, Father. Amen.